0: Morning folks, so you braved the weather, you made it, all right, well our scripture reading for this morning is found on page 573 in the Pew Bible, and it's Isaiah, we're heading back into the book of Isaiah, um, we finished our series on the spiritual disciplines, and we're entering back into our series through the book of Isaiah, so we're in chapter 9, Picking up where we left off, and we're going to start reading at verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. And hopefully you'll see how this section hangs together. There's a refrain that is repeated four times. So if you wouldn't mind, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read? Isaiah chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will build cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail. Palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tale. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we did kind of a thematic series um, on the spiritual disciplines over the last several weeks on prayer and fasting and Bible reading and um, service and evangelism and, and so on. Um, we've, we started the book of Isaiah in the fall and, and it led right up to For Unto Us a Child Is Born in chapter 9, the Sunday before Christmas. And so now we're picking up right where we left off in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. And we're going to take the next chunk, okay? So if if it's helpful to you, I think we've got slides that will follow along um, with the points. There's also a little outline in um, the bulletin if that's helpful for you. But if you notice, the sermon title, um, that title is not original to me. I'm not trying to give the impression that that title is original to me. Some of you know what I'm talking about here. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Oh, great. What a happy theme for this morning. Um, well that title's not mine It's actually the title of one of the most famous sermons in American history um, So maybe high school English class is a way back for some of you But do any of you, are you familiar with that title even if you've never read it? Okay, so a fair number of you So that sermon was preached in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards Okay during a time that was known as the First Great Awakening. So there was a time of widespread revival in the American colonies in the 1730s and 40s. Um, maybe you've heard of the name George Whitfield as well. He would be involved in that. So let me just say this. One, I don't use that title lightly. Okay, this is a weighty sermon, and it's still in print, and people still read it today. Um, my sermon's not going to be anywhere near as important as Jonathan Edwards' sermon, but it is a very appropriate title for this passage, okay? So that theme, an angry God, is not probably the one that we love to consider. It might be a theme that we kind of get uncomfortable when we read about it or when the preacher starts talking about it or whatever. So even Edward's sermon, when you heard about that, sermon, especially if you were in public school or maybe you read it in college in an English class or literature class or history class or something like that, chances are the connotations that were assigned to that sermon were not particularly flattering, okay? The Puritans often get a bad name. Jonathan Edwards was a part of that group, at least on the tail end. They were kind of, sometimes they're labeled as like prudish, sour, self-righteous folk. It's a bad caricature, okay? Okay? And Edward's sermon is usually portrayed as an infamous sermon rather than a famous servant with positive assessment of its value, okay? So sometimes the picture's portrayed of this, you know, sour, angry, intolerant, hellfire and brimstone preacher that probably manipulated his hearers psychologically into fits of fear and anxiety. Okay, again, bad caricature. Edward's actually knew heaven better than he knew hell. And if you really want to read and consider that, proof of it, you can read a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love that he wrote or a little essay called The Christian Pilgrim, and you'll see what I mean. Um, If you were to read one of those two, Christian Pilgrim is gold, and it's only like four pages long, which is very uncharacteristic of Jonathan Edwards. Um, Sometimes what he writes is really long. So anyway, (laughs) what Edwards says in that message is very sobering in its description of the wrath of God and of hell. So I'm going to give you a sampling, and some of you might squirm a little bit. I understand. Here's what, some of what he said in that message. There's nothing... Now, he's speaking to people, churchgoers, but a lot of them just... It was just a cultural thing. They didn't believe the gospel, so he's warning them, okay, that they need to take these things seriously, not just go through the motions, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean His sovereign, the, the freedom of his sovereign will restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty such that nothing else but God's mere will has in the least degree any hand in the preservation of wicked people for one moment. Then he says this, you've offended him Infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. And then he starts to warn. So he's he's not just trying to scare them. He's saying, oh, he's pleading with them. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you were held over in the hand of the God whose wrath is provoked. This is really sobering stuff there's a lot more there i mean you might be cringing right now you might be uncomfortable you might think that's over the top well have you ever felt like jesus's words are over the top if you were in, in the christianity explored classes this morning i didn't i didn't kind of plan this but the third lesson in the christianity explored considers the the doctrine of hell and so together this morning, if you weren't there, we read Mark nine, forty-three to 48, which this is Jesus. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Again, he's speaking metaphorically. He's saying, be ruthless with sin. It's killing you. It's killing your soul. So don't, don't treat it lightly. Obviously, you could lust with both eyes, pluck one out, and you can lust with the other one. Pluck both out and still do it in your head. So he's not talking about literally doing this. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then he quotes Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, 24, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So what do you think of the judgment, the anger of God? How do you feel about the judgment of God? Even broader, what do you do with things in the Bible as you confront them, as you're confronted by them? Things that make you uncomfortable. Things that kind of cut against the grain of your soul. Do you just try to avoid them? Do you just... You know, avoid it, hope it goes away. Or do you do like a designer religion thing where you just kind of cut and paste? Well, I like this, I don't like that. What do you do? What's your normal response to these things? Well, we certainly dare not, hopefully, I hope we resonate with this, we don't want to mock or be ashamed of or resist or ignore or downplay biblical teaching on the anger the judgment, the wrath of God. But we may, part of our, 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 our reaction may be due to a twisted view of some of these things. We may read too much from the top or from the bottom up. We may read what we know of anger up into the character of God. So listen to a couple quotes here from J.I. Packer in Knowing God, his classic book. Clearly, the theme of God's wrath is one about which the biblical writers feel no inhibitions whatever. Why then should we? Why, when the Bible is vocal about it, should we feel abides to be silent? What is it that makes us awkward and embarrassed when the subject comes up that prompts us to soft-pedal it and hedge when we are asked about it? What lies at the bottom of our hesitations and difficulties? We are not thinking now of those whose dismissal of the idea of divine wrath means only that they are not prepared to take any part of the biblical faith seriously. We are thinking rather of the many who count themselves insiders, who have firm beliefs about God's love and pity and the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and who follow Scripture robustly on other things, yet who boggle at robustly echoing it on this point. What really is the trouble here? It's a good question. And it might be different for different ones of us here, but it's worth considering that question rhetorically. But here's one of the things that he says in response. To some, for instance, wrath suggests a loss of self-control, an outburst of seeing red, which is partly, if not wholly, irrational. So if that's true of God, then certainly we would kind of resist it somewhat. But here's how he describes God's wrath, and I think this is a wise statement. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. Even among humans, there is such a thing as righteous indignation though it is perhaps rarely found, so easily twisted. But all God's indignation is righteous. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Okay, so I think even though we don't probably like it, We need, when we come upon passages like this, we need to let it sit in front of us and we need to look it full in the face and hear it and embrace it and not ignore it or run, okay? Because if you think about it, and Packer's hinted at it, the anger of God is actually inextricably tied together with his love. He loves us too much to be indifferent to our evil <clears throat> i mean just imagine if if god was indifferent to rape to child abuse or even bullying that happens at the school level but it also happens at national levels and inside countries where there's little factions and pockets that throw their weight around How should God feel about Boko Haram? ISIS. Okay, so here's the thing. We we say, well, obviously, we can resonate with that in regards to Boko Haram and ISIS, but evil runs through every human heart. (laughs) So that's where if God dealt with all of the evil At once, why does he allow this to happen? Well, if he dealt with all the evil all at once, guess what? All of us are toast. Okay? So, if he loves his world, these people he's created, he can't be indifferent to things that threaten them, that devour them, that tear them apart. Okay? So do not associate, don't confuse the anger of God, we're going to read of the anger of God we already have. In that refrain, his anger, four times. But don't, don't associate it with that hair trigger, fly-off-the-handle rage maybe of your father or some other person who maybe has hurt you deeply, okay? Someone who didn't have any patience or self-control. God is perfectly opposed to evil, and he's perfectly patient and loving and just. Okay? So, let's look at full in the face. God gets angry, and that's actually a good thing. It's a very sobering thing, and we should, we should deal with the implications, but it's also a good thing. You know, life just is not as simple as the Hallmark card sentimentality, is it? Okay? So we can't try to recreate God into our sentimental, round-off-all-the-rough-edges-tame-and-domesticate-him sort of way. That God is no God. That God is actually a psychological crutch of our own making, okay? made of cardboard or something. And when you try to lean any weight on that God made in your own image, it will certainly collapse. Okay. So hopefully by the end we'll see even that... We don't even want a God who doesn't get angry, okay? Now, here we go into Isaiah, (laughs) and you followed along as I read through this section. I'm sure you're going, I have no idea what's going on, okay? So we have to go through Palestine before we can come to Wilmington if we're going to understand what this passage says to us. So you've got to go with me. You can't check out right now as we go through some of the histor- histor- historical stuff to get back to us here as far as application is concerned. So there's a lot of distance here. I'll try to keep it short and sweet, but we do need to, to do that travel effort um, so, the, uh, so that we understand what's going on here. Okay? And you know what? I was thinking about this this week. We do this all the time. Okay? We get interested in history for documentaries, for historical fiction, for stories that are based on a true story. And you know what? We're willing to kind of enter into the story and understand what was going on, and it's because the story is valuable to us, because there's something really important going on in the story. there, there are inspiring things in there. There's heartwarming things in there. There's sobering things in there. I mean, usually those stories, they speak of something heroic or... Um, thought-provoking themes kind of bubble up or also how many times in these you know, true story movies how often is justice served in the long run to meet some great evil it shows the best of what human beings are capable of and also the worst right in based on true story movies that we love um, well how much more should we be willing and interested in what God is capable of, or how he works, his wisdom, his ways, and how justice has been in the past and will be served in the long run to meet great evil. Okay? Just in case you need a little extra incentive to do the hard work here um, of following the history. Okay. So this section actually addresses a question that was raised. In the previous section. So I know, oh great, we got to go back. This section doesn't make sense. And now we got to go back to another tough section. So look back at chapter 7. Okay? So flip back to chapter 7. Even if you weren't here, you know, back in December when we looked at this, hopefully this will make sense. I'll try to summarize it briefly. So look at verse 3. Um, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. He's the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem was the capital city, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be quiet, be careful, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. In other words, God is saying to Ahaz the king, Trust me, don't fear because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Rem- Remaliah. Then look down at verse seven. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Hermalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay. Quick little review here. So the Lord appealed to Ahaz through Isaiah his prophet And he said, listen, these two, Judah's down here, Israel, northern kingdom is up here. The kingdom had split after Solomon, okay? And these guys wanted these guys to join them against the Assyrians to kind of be this united front. Ahaz didn't want to do that. So they say, fine, we're going to just come down and crush you, put our own king in your place, and then we'll be able to be a united front against Assyria. And you know what Ahaz said? You know what? I'm going to go buddy-buddy with Assyria. And then Assyria will protect me from you guys. Because you know what? That dog's stronger. My money's with him. Okay? So that's what happened. And God is saying, don't trust in Assyria. Trust me. These two up here, you know what? They're going to they're just burn out in no time they're just smoldering you know cigarette butts don't worry about them don't take matters into your own hands don't try to work the political angles to save your skin but you know what he went ahead and made that alliance he took money from the temp the temple like all this gold and stuff that was in the treasury and he gave it paid off Assyria. and you know what happened it worked He said to the king of Assyria, I'm your servant and your son. Come and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Okay? So you could think, boy, God warned him, but then it worked. <laughs> so Ahaz kind of saved himself in the southern kingdom by his ingenuity, his political savvy. The military muscle of Assyria, it worked. So maybe it does pay not to trust in the Lord. Maybe it does pay to take matters into your own hands. This section is written to say, no, no it's not. It never is. Sometimes it can seem so for a little while. People get away with taking matters into their own hands. Sometimes those who do trust the Lord seem to suffer for it, and sometimes those who take matters into their own hands, seem to just be doing fine. And this passage is here to say, hold on, you need a wider angle lens view. Trust me. Okay, so that's why this section is so important. Here's the thing, the biggest threat that everyone, southern and northern kingdoms together, the biggest threat that they both should have been concerned about was not Assyria, they should have been concerned about God. But Ahaz was more concerned about this northern alliance that was coming against him. The northern kingdom was more afraid of Assyria. So everybody is concerned about the bully in front of them. And they're refusing to take heed to the tsunami wave that's behind them. And Isaiah is saying, turn around. Look at the wave. That's what really matters. You need something to protect you from that. And that's the anger of God. So this passage, there's details, we're not going to get hopefully too much lost down in the weeds, but the passage is very clearly saying to us that God is always the biggest problem we all have to face. He's always the biggest problem, He's always the biggest factor in every one of our life issues and anxieties and fears, and He's also wonderfully always the solution. So if we refuse to trust him, our strategies for self-salvation, taking matters into our own hands, may work in the short run, but whoever tries to save his life will lose it. You can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, okay? So this passage would have been very applicable with those kind of themes, (coughs) to the northern kingdom it's actually spoken to the northern kingdom but remember Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom and so this passage is very applicable to the southern kingdom as well because they were watching the southern kingdom got destroyed they they had to sleep in the bed that they made first they felt the effects of their rebellion first and the southern kingdom should have looked on and learned a lesson but instead they they didn't. It's just that their judgment was delayed a little longer. Okay? It should have been a lesson to them. And so just like it should have been a lesson to the southern kingdom, it should also be a lesson to us. Okay? To fail to take these historical lessons to heart is disastrous. Okay? This is why the Old Testament is preserved for us. Okay? Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10 he's talking about the Israelites in the Old Testament. He says, you know what? With most of them, God wasn't pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Remember, they grumbled and complained and there was judgment in the wilderness. They didn't enter the promised land, that one generation. And then he says this, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So he says to the Corinthians, don't be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. There was all kinds of bad consequences. Remember, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. And then he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed to those historical lessons and to the seeds of the same kind of rebellion and pride in their own hearts, lest he fall. Okay, so it's really clear that Isaiah 9 and 10 are written down for our instruction. Okay, even though Ahaz took matters into his own hands, even though it paid off for a time, it ultimately didn't work, okay? And it won't work for us if we try to take matters into our own hands, okay? They had gained for a little, little space, southern kingdom, they had gained some worldly peace, The threats were taken care of because he paid off Assyria, but they forfeited their souls in the process. We need to hear that. We need to be warned, okay? So one more just really big picture thing, and then we're going to go through the passage fairly quickly, okay, because the themes are the most important thing, and they're fairly clear, okay? But as you go through Isaiah, and certainly this little section of chapters 7 to 12, which kind of all hangs together, there's... there's, a really cool thing that you see, and I want you to see this kind of force for the trees view point. One, that the book of Isaiah in this section is all about the supremacy of God. He's always, I've already said it, but he's always the biggest factor in everything. And he needs to be the biggest factor, biggest variable in every one of our life equations. He needs to loom largest in our lives. We need to stop fearing people who are just created beings. We need to fear the Lord, trust in Him. See, when, when small people, and that's all of us, we're all small relative to God, when small people, I heard somebody say something like this one time, when small people cast long shadows, you know the sun is setting. Which is kind of interesting because in Isaiah 8.20, look back there, if the sun is setting, that means darkness is coming. And Isaiah is all about, would you stop thinking so highly of people and think more highly of God? Back in 820, to the teaching, to the testimony, listen to the word of God. Don't reject it. Don't stick your fingers in your ears. If these people won't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God. Verse 22, they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. So unfortunately, Assyria and those people loomed really large, this big shadow, and God was really small. And Isaiah is all about reversing that. And it's the same thing for us. We fear people all the time. We're, we're you know, want to please everybody, and we make compromises in order to do that. We lie. We shade the truth. We do these kind of things. It's because God looms very small, and people loom really large. So the book of Isaiah is all about the supremacy of God. He's the biggest factor in everything, and that is the light that Isaiah is shedding so that we don't live in the darkness of thinking people are so big and God is small, okay? But also, this supreme God is supremely merciful. Second kind of big picture point. And this God saves. That's the old title of the series. Isaiah's name is Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. So he reminds us of that with his name. And the book reminds us of that over and over and over again. So think about it. Chapter 7 to 12, Ahaz was supposed to be a good king over God's people. He was a bad king and led God's people astray. Brought judgment down on Judah. But then, right before Christmas, we looked at nine six, and there's this hopeful note that struck, that there's going to be this child born, a son given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, Okay? So King Ahaz, bad king, doesn't trust the Lord, judgment, but there's hope. Here comes the child born. And then this section that we're in, more mess, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, not trusting the Lord, judgment's coming, but then it leads to chapter 11. Look at 11.1 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus. So the point is, the book of Isaiah is all about the supremacy of God and the book of Isaiah is all about the centrality of the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Is that something that you want to study for the next you know, however many weeks? The supremacy of God and the centrality of the the merciful, loving Son of God, the King of Kings. Okay? That's good news. This section, even though we can get easily lost, you know, force for the trees, we want to make sure we keep the big picture. Okay? So, we got to look at some of the the hard things here in this section. We need to look at God's righteous anger, full in the face, before we get reminded again of the good news of His Savior, Son, the Messiah. So, 9, 8 verses, or 9, chapter 9, verses 8 to 12. Pride comes before the fall. So the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. Israel referring to the northern kingdom. Okay? And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. And historically, we're not sure if that was because there was an earthquake about that time, and an earthquake could have done that work of the stones falling, or it could have been um, referring to a military attack. Hey, they attacked us. We suffered losses. But you know what? Nobody can beat down the American spirit. Oh, wait, no. It's actually the... Remember some of the rhetoric after 9-11? Okay? That's what was going on in Israel. The sycamores have been cut down. We'll, We'll put cedars in their place. So rather than being humbled, like, I wonder if God's trying to tell us something here, it actually reinforced their pride, their self-sufficiency, and their trust in themselves. So they're speaking with a kind of bravado that says, oh yeah, you can't touch us, you can't slow us down. But the Lord, verse 11, it's the Lord that raises the adversaries of Rezin against him, the Assyrians, okay? It's the Lord who's done this, and it's because of their rebellion. Syrians on the east the Philistines on the west for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still that's that refrain okay we've already heard it once back in chapter 5 verse 25 and speaking of Judah okay so they they think they're so strong that no setback no disaster can touch them they're too strong for that so they're trusting in their own resources their own ingenuity their own resilience they can turn any loss into a gain. So they're just leaving God out of the equation, which is, you know, not a good idea because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And we need that reminder often. So this is an example for us that pride comes before the fall. God opposes the proud. He did it in history. This isn't just, this isn't just the kind of You know, ebb and flow of history, this is a sovereign, supreme God guiding history. So we need to see the impact of the opposition of God to proud people because we are spring-loaded to pride and arrogance, and our pride is pervasive and insidious. Okay, So no, we're not in the same situation as Israel, and hopefully we're not as pompously arrogant as they were. But again, we don't need to let this lesson be lost on us. Let's pray for eyes to see our pride. Let's humble ourselves under God's mighty hand because you know what? In the book of Isaiah, there's all the pride that God's going to, the proud that God's going to bring down, but then he also says what he does for the humble. So listen to just the sampling of the opposite of this, of this section in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Or Isaiah 66, 2, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word rather than sticking his fingers in his ears. So pride comes before the fall, but the Lord loves to lift up the humble. Okay, so this is a a very contemporary lesson for all of us today. Okay, now let's look at the second lesson here, verses 9, 13 to 17. When the blind lead the blind. Okay, so the refrain... For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is how recalcitrant, this is how stubborn these people were. God judged them, they didn't listen. They just, it just kind of fed their bravado. And so he says, there's more judgment to come. You just won't listen. Verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day, which may be a reference to when the Assyrians just totally sacked the northern kingdom in 722. Okay, so what's this head and tail, palm, branch, and reed thing? Well, he explains it in verse 15. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, And has not has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. You know it's bad if that's the way God is relating to a people. If he is not having compassion on their fatherless and widows. Wait, 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 wait a second. Psalm 68, 5 says that he's the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. Well, this is so bad. Look at it. He has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, because Everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. It's like Genesis 6. It got so bad that every impulse with everyone was sinful all the time, and God finally said, enough, I'm going to wipe out the earth, and I'm just going to preserve Noah and his family. So this is sober judgment. It's supposed to wake them up, shake them awake, but they just still don't get it. They're not listening. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So from the highest leaders to the lowest, judged. It's just like Jesus in Matthew 15. Let them alone, they're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And that's what's happening. The blind are leading the blind. Okay? But also, as we, as we go through the book of Isaiah, you'll see that light is dawning, and there's hope. Where there was gloom and anguish, this child is going to be born. Light is going to dawn, and as a result, those who see the light and trust in the light of the world, they will be, that light will shine in their hearts and they will become the light of the world. They'll be his witnesses shining with his light and will be radiant. So that's the opposite, and that hope, hopeful note is struck in Isaiah as well. So when we refuse the, the judgment, the chastisement of the Lord, and there's just this terrible cycle of downward spiral, the blind leading the blind, but instead when we welcome the truth and receive his instruction, then there's good leadership that grows up and it blesses people, and light shines. Okay? So, that's still not all of it. For all this, his, hand, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. I think this should be, I think this should weigh on us. Like, you're probably like, okay, enough of the bad news. Well, I think that's part of it. We should feel like, oh, this is so heavy. That's why we should take this seriously. Look at the third point here selfishness is insatiable look at verses 18 to 21 for wickedness burns like a fire this is how bad it was it consumes briars and thorns it kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke he's just given these word pictures this is what selfishness does it just lights a wildfire and people just get devoured but it's also the working of god's wrath and his judgment through the wrath of the lord of hosts the land is scorched the people are like fuel for the fire no one spares one another they slight, they're just hungry. They're devouring and they're not satisfied. This image even of devouring the flesh of his own arm, it's that selfish, that hungry. Selfishness is insatiable. We're never satisfied, so we devour, we use, we exploit. How can God be indifferent to that? Well, thankfully, he's not. His anger is directed toward that. Okay, and this is not, again, just with ancient peoples. This is very contemporary. Paul says it so well in Galatians 5. This, I think, probably sounds probably too close to home. In Galatians 5, he says, you know, love is the, the summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Does that ever characterize the speech in your home? Does that ever characterize sometimes the the interactions in your office? And we can enter into that because we're being selfish and we just, ah! God does not like that. He hates that. And we need to hear that. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And then finally, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 10, no one's getting away with anything. You can picture these just... Powerful people writing selfish laws and decrees for their own advantage. You know, these people are kind of stereotypical in in so many movies. So you can just imagine some of these people. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, take advantage of the weak and powerless and vulnerable, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do, you fat cats? What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? So you who preyed on the helpless will then become helpless. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still it's a really sobering word. (laughs) So the word of the Lord is going to fall right at the beginning of our section 9, 8, and there's nothing that remains but to fall at the end, verse 4. It's just really a sad picture. But (laughs) this story, it happened. It's recorded as an example for us to learn from it. To guard against those same dynamics being present in our lives and hearts. But thankfully, we know how the story unfolded, and we know that there is a reversal to this refrain. Listen to the refrain again For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Well, guess what? Flip to Isaiah 40, because relief comes. It's prophesied, and then we live on this side of the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 40. So you can imagine, there's there so much judgment in the book of Isaiah, but then chapter 40 comes, and it's like a cup of cold water on a hot, parched tongue. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And how's that going to come? Well, the Lord's going to show up. A voice cries. And who's the fulfillment of that? John the Baptist? Preparing the way for Jesus who comes. So, how is this refrain going to be reversed? only through the Lamb of God slain, crushed in the place of those who deserve the anger of God, and this comfort can be spoken to us. Okay, so what a relief that His anger can be turned away and His hand outstretched can be outstretched to welcome us and to bless us rather than pour out His anger And his wrath. So how does that come? It only comes through the lamb slain. The Lord poured out his anger on Jesus. Jesus was our substitute on the cross. And he took the punishment for our pride. For our blindness and our refusal to hear the truth. For our selfishness and our devouring kind of consumer orientation. He died for that so that we could be made new, so that pride could be replaced with gospel humility, so that blindness could be replaced with sight, so that devouring and and just using people could be turned to giving and blessing and serving people. So, this is the way the world under God's sovereign supreme supremacy his sovereign rule works it's the way he rules his world so when you reject his word his rule his wisdom chaos ensues and there's judgment and it's so clear in these sections but when we repent and we welcome his word especially the word made flesh who died in our place to absorb the anger of God, the righteous justice of God that we deserve to pay, He paid it for us, then everything is reversed. That chaos and just desolation turns into fruitfulness and vitality and life. So to all of that, I hope we can say, Jesus, thank you. That's our response. That's the song we're going to sing here in just a moment in response, okay? So let's not be ashamed of the anger and the wrath of God. Let's not try to kind of rub it out of our Bibles, out of our lives, even just practically speaking. We need to look it clear in the face because you know what? If you, if you downplay the wrath of God, you actually downplay the love of God on the cross because Jesus actually took all of that Anger. So the more you look it in the face and go, oh man, we are in trouble. The cross is the measure of the love of God to take all of that anger in our place. That's awesome. That's really good news. So let's not downplay. Let's not soft pedal it. In fact, let me just say one more thing here. Have you ever gotten cut off in traffic? How did you react? Did you get angry? Why did you get angry? Well, there's plenty of like that sinful hair trigger stuff that we're talking about at the beginning that we shouldn't apply to God. But at one level, you are an image bearer. You're made in the image of God. So you have dignity of worth and worth. And sometimes people just... Just treat that dignity of worth as if it's not there. That's a slight. That's a dishonor. Right? So in a sense, there's some justice. There's some judicial sentiments that are, okay, there's a seed of truth there. Or this one time, I don't know if I've given this illustration before. There was one time I was in a grocery store. You know those um, automatic lines? You just kind of do it yourself. Um, And there was a guy. I was standing here. I probably shouldn't have done this. I should have committed one way or the other. But I was in the middle thinking, whichever one go, opens first, I'll just go to that. And then we'll just have one line, right? Some guy just kind of just stepped right in front of me. And I'm thinking, oh, excuse me. You know, I guess I, guess I don't really matter, you know. So, and I'm like getting ticked off inside. I'm going, what? Because my dignity and my worth was slighted. If we would get that upset over that small of a slight and our dignity is real but relatively very small in relation to God's. What kind of wrath? What kind of anger is God justly? What does He justly have the right to in relation to us? Think of how we have slighted him. Think of how we have used him. Think of how we have ignored him. And his worth is infinite. His honor is infinite. So if we hear a refrain, and for all this his hand is outstretched still, his anger. Oh man, that's what, we deserve that anger to be directed toward us. And he wasn't satisfied with just justice. He sent his son to absorb all of that just wrath in our place. That's really awesome. That's really sweet. That is the love of God. That's the measure of the love of God. So if we really get that, we're going to say, yes, Jesus, thank you. If it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for your grace, I would be just as blind and prideful and I would be in the same place under the same warning, under the same judgment as these people. Let's thank them together in song.